This is Mike Grell, and you're listening to Warlord Worlds. Listening to Warlord Worlds, a fan podcast devoted to the comic creations of writer and artist Mike Grell, including Warlord, John Sable, Star Slayer, and Green Arrow. I'm Darren. And I'm Ruth, and this is a fan podcast. We're not affiliated with Mike Grell, and the opinions expressed are just ours. We're doing this podcast simply because we enjoy reading and talking about the comics of Mike Grell. We vary the number of issues covered in each episode based on how story arcs fall. Today we're going to be talking about The Warlord 11 through 14, John Sable 8 and 9, Green Arrow 5 and 6, and Star Slayer issue 2. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to check out MikeGrell.com, which is his official site. He posts upcoming convention appearances there, along with occasional news updates. If you ever have a chance to meet Mike Grell at a convention, we encourage you to do so. He's always friendly and very appreciative of his fans. He has a great selection of prints and does original drawings at reasonable prices. If you're unable to see him at a convention, but would like to get an original drawing, you can contact Scott Cress of Catskill Comics. He's the official representative for Mike Grell for commissions. He's always friendly and helpful. Also, fans will want to check out the trailer for the upcoming movie Star Raiders, The Adventures of Saber Rain, which features Mike Grell in a small role. He showed us the trailer when we saw him at Cherokee Comic Con. It looks like a fun, lighthearted sci-fi adventure. We'll put the link to the trailer in our show notes. Seeing the trailer prompted us to look up Mike Grell on the Internet Movie Database at imdb.com, where we saw his middle name is John, spelled J-O-N, just like John Sable. Very cool. We also recommend you check out comic artist Stephen B. Scott on Facebook and Twitter. He's a great artist who has worked on Batman, X-Men, JLA, and Indiana Jones. Plus, he's friends with Mike Grell, and the two are currently on their Euro Tour 2016, visiting comic shops together in amazing cities like Amsterdam and Paris. It's great fun to see Scott's photos. And here are a few other resources that Mike Grell fans will enjoy. If you are on Facebook, check out the Mike Grell page, expertly run by Gus Ceballos. Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network is a Mike Grell fan and occasionally covers Mike Grell comics. Jeff Messer at the Geek Brain Popcast is a lifelong fan and has done a couple of interviews with Mike Grell on his show. Green Arrow fans should enjoy the Emerald Archer podcast from Ed and Nick Moore, which covers Green Arrow comics both past and present. Black Canary fans have a couple of podcasts they can check out, including Ryan Daly's Powers of Fishnets that features both Black Canary and Zatanna, and Feathers and Foes that focuses on the birds of prey. Links to all of those resources are in the show notes for those of you who want to check them out. We would love to hear from you, so drop us a note and let us know what you think of the show. Please give us your thoughts on the stories and art or any aspect of Mike Grell's comics. We'll provide our email address and other ways to contact us at the end of the episode. And if you enjoy this show, please consider checking out our other podcast, which is Trekker Talk. It's devoted to the adventures of 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair from the pages of Trekker Comics by creator, writer, and artist Ron Randall. Our two podcasts collided recently when Ron Randall posted a fantastic warlord commission he did for a fan. 
It features Travis Morgan battling a giant serpent in a swamp. It was a stunning image. For those of you who don't know, Ron Randall drew the Barren Earth backup story in Warlord issues 63 to 88, and he was the primary Warlord artist for many of the later issues of the series. It's a great commission, and we'll post it on both our Warlord Worlds and Trekker Talks social media pages. Our friend Lori Sutton recently posted a link to a TV interview that she did. Lori is a former DC editor, including working as editor on Warlord, as well as a comic writer including issues of Star Trek, and we've had the pleasure to hang out with her at DragonCon in Atlanta. The interview was about the U2 series of adventure books that she currently writes, which features characters including Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and Scooby-Doo. We'll include a link to the interview in our show notes, so be sure to check that out as well. John Sable Freelance, number 8, Murder is the Last Resort, January 1984. Created, written, and illustrated by Mike Grell, colors Janice Cohen, letters Peter Iroh, editor Mike Gold. Our story picks up the day after the previous issue. Jason Sonny Pratt is talking to John Sable on the phone and says he hopes he doesn't scare the lady off from the night before with his appearance as Zorro. Then he uses his knowledge of Sable's secret identity as children's author B.B. Flynn to blackmail Sable, but in a friendly way, into letting Sonny become his partner of sorts. Sancho to Sable's Don Quixote, he says. However, their call is interrupted when a woman suddenly appears behind Sable holding his own pistol. She wants to hire him. Her name is Trina Cole, and she works at the Eagle's Nest Resort a few hours north. The night before, she was dropping off some papers to owner Andrew Sherman's office when she noticed the wall safe was open. Knowing he was sometimes forgetful, she went to close the safe just as Security Chief Vince Hawkins walked in, and seeing her at the open safe, he accused her of trying to steal the money inside. She panicked and shoved Hawkins, who fell and hit his head on the desk. She was certain she had accidentally killed him, so she ran. Her picture is now all over the newspapers, and while it turns out Hawkins was only unconscious and not dead, she is still wanted for stealing the contents of the safe, which was more than 100000 in cash and some jewelry. Sable has his new partner, Sonny, come over to keep an eye on Trina while he travels to Eagle's Nest to investigate. He finds owner Andrew Sherman is hopeful that Trina is innocent. He knows she was in some trouble in the past, but he wants to believe she's changed, even though the evidence seems clear. The opinion of Security Chief Vince Hawkins is just the opposite. He's certain Trina is guilty. He says he could see the open safe and the money and the jewels were inside. He saw desk clerk Carter Haynes in the hallway just before entering the office. It was Haynes who found him just a few minutes later when he came to the office to collect some brochures for the front display. So Hawkins knows he was only out for a few minutes and no one else had time to enter the room and take the money and jewels. Sable also meets singer Angela Ryder, who is currently performing for a convention being held at the resort. Later, Sable and Angela take a walk down to the lake as a shadow watches them from the distance. The next day, the body of Haynes, the desk clerk, is found at the bottom of the stairs. His body is covered in bruises, but the medical examiner is certain it was a heart attack and says the bruises are from the fall down the stairs. Later, Sable finds Sherman talking to a woman at the desk who calls him Colonel. When Sable questions that, Sherman says he spent 20 years butting heads with the brass in the Strategic Air Command. Outside, Sable sees someone searching his car. When he runs toward them, the shadowed figure jumps into another car and drives straight at Sable. Sable pulls out his pistol and fires multiple shots into the front window. The car swerves and crashes, and Sable finds the dead body of Security Chief Hawkins inside. Sable has a story to tell Angela that night. He believes Security Chief Hawkins was the original thief. 
He opened the safe, but was interrupted by Trina, who ducked outside and circled around to catch her instead. However, when he fell, he was unconscious longer than he realized, because when desk clerk Haynes entered the room and saw the unconscious Hawkins and the open safe, he took the opportunity to take all of the money and jewels before Hawkins woke up. In a desperate attempt to win over Angela, Haynes gave her a piece of jewelry. However, that was his big mistake, because he didn't know Angela was Hawkins' accomplice. When she showed the necklace to Hawkins, he beat up Haynes to find out where the money was hidden, but Haynes died of a heart attack during the beating, so Hawkins threw the body down the stairs to cover up the bruises. While Hawkins and Angela never figured out where the money was hidden, Sable did. Haynes was telling the truth about coming to the office to collect brochures, and he hid the money in the box of brochures. Sable opens the box to illustrate his point, and in addition to the money and jewels, he finds a file titled Top Secret, Operation First Strike. Just then, the door crashes in, and Sherman and the woman who called him Colonel and two other men enter with rifles raised, and Sherman thanks Sable for recovering his property. The cover by Mike Grell features John Sable caught in the headlights of an oncoming car, reminiscent of the scene when Hawkins drives toward him in the issue. Some of my favorite art in the issue are the various scenes of the resort on the lake. It made me wonder if it might be based on a place Mike Grell had visited. There are lots of characters to introduce in this issue, which is constructed a bit like a mystery, so we meet many suspects in short order. I think there's a funny inside joke in the issue when Angela is telling Sable how difficult it is working at these types of resorts. To illustrate her point, on page 12, she jokingly asks, Have you ever been stuck in an elevator with the Elks from Rice Lake, Wisconsin? I believe Mike Grell is from Wisconsin, so perhaps he is really familiar with the Elks of Rice Lake. John Sable Freelance Number 9, Cliffhanger, February 1984. Created, written, and illustrated by Mike Grell. Colors, Janice Cohen. Letters, Peter Iro. Editor, Mike Gold. As our story continues, we learn that Sherman has promoted himself from colonel to general. He is the leader of an extremist group, and the convention attendees at the resort are actually his troops in disguise. He is eager to get his Operation First Strike files back before anyone can discover his plans. Sable and Angela manage to escape as the soldiers are walking them to the woods to dispose of them. As they are hiding out along the shore of the lake, they notice faint lights coming from a partially submerged entry into a cave. They follow the narrow tunnel, which opens into a large cave full of ammunition and explosives. They overhear plans for a nuclear bomb to be transported in a truck to the United Nations building, and the group has other nuclear bombs hidden in the cave for future use. Angela reveals to Sable that she is actually a lieutenant in the Air Force on an undercover mission to investigate Sherman. Security Chief Hawkins was her partner. Sable got most things wrong during his investigation. Hawkins did break into the safe, but not to steal the money or jewels. He was there to collect the first strike plans until Trina Cole interrupted him. The only part Sable got right was that desk clerk Haynes did take advantage of the situation to steal the money, but didn't realize that he had also stolen Sherman's plans. She and Hawkins initially thought Sable was working with Sherman, which is why Hawkins was searching Sable's car. Angela explains the precise trigger mechanism needed to detonate a nuclear bomb, which means the two of them could start a fire to trigger the explosives in the cave to destroy the bombs without setting off a nuclear reaction. Sable dons his battle mask and prepares for action. He sets up a matchbook with a cigarette burning to ignite a box of explosives that will soon blow up the cave. As he and Angela are leaving the cave, they run into the general and one of his soldiers. Sable makes an offhand remark to Sherman that he must be a fan of the film's Dr. Strangelove and Failsafe. Sable throws a knife that hits the general's assistant, causing him to fall, and knocks the general off the ledge. Angela and Sable escape just as the cave explodes. 
Sable commandeers a motorcycle to intercept the truck that has already departed carrying the bomb to the United Nations. The truck is making slow progress on the narrow back roads, allowing Sable to quickly catch up to it, and a well-timed hand grenade causes the truck to explode and crash over a cliff. The issue features lots of interesting plot devices, including Sable tying his shirt to a rock and rolling it down a hill to confuse the dogs that are tracking him, and the clever way he uses the matchbook as a fuse to detonate the explosion in the cave. The issue features a great cover by Mike Grell. John Sable is on a ledge in the cave firing his gun while reaching out to Angela, who is hanging over a cliff. The layouts and art in this issue are varied and interesting. I like the atmosphere and the night scenes on the lake when Sable and Angela discover the cave. And I like the way the story unfolds visually on pages 16 and 17 as Sable is setting up the delayed detonation of the explosives. Page 21 is a great sequence as Sable and Angela make a dramatic last-minute exit from the cave just before the explosion. And pages 24 through 26 feature another exciting visual sequence of the motorcycle chase and the truck exploding and crashing over the cliff. I particularly like the reference to the film Dr. Strangelove, which is my all-time favorite film. It's a classic Cold War comedy directed by Stanley Kubrick and featuring the hilarious Peter Sellers in multiple roles. The outrageous subtitle of the film is How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Welcome to Astro City, a Pulp to Pixel podcast. An issue-by-issue ratings and review of the creator-owned comic book series Astro City by the writer-artist team of Kurt Fusick, Brent Anderson, and Alex Ross. You can find episodes of Welcome to Astro City and other Pulp to Pixel podcasts at pulptopixel.blogspot.com pulptopixel.tumblr.com through the iTunes store under the Pulp to Pixel Podcasts and through Facebook at the Pulp to Pixel Podcast webpage. Man, you come right out of a comic book. The Pulp to Pixel Podcasts exploring the media multiverse of geek culture. You meddled in things and you leave the Star Slayer, the Director's Cut number 2, June 1995. Author, Mike Grell. Letters, Steve Haney. Colors, Rob Pryor. Editor, Mike Gold. The story opens in the forests of Britain, in the distant past, with Torin overseeing his son Bronn's first boar hunt. As the two make their way home after the hunt, they encounter a small band of Roman soldiers. Torin defeats them all in a bloody battle, then walks to the shore where he sees more Roman soldiers arriving in large wooden ships. He and his son hurry to the village to warn the others. He tells his wife, Gwyneth, to pack up some items and prepare to hide in the forest. She agrees that is best, but her father, who is the village chief, disagrees. He isn't afraid of the Romans, and instead expects them to bring tribute and trade that will benefit the village. His good friend Ivor is the only other villager Torin can convince to join them, and as the small group travels deep into the forest, they encounter an old druid necromancer. While they are discussing the dangers of the Romans, Torin's son finds a sword. The necromancer tells him it is not for him, but for one of his descendants many generations in the future. Once they leave, the druid inserts the sword into a stone, saying, That ought to hold it. Meanwhile, back at the village, Gwyneth's father is learning the Romans are as devious and treacherous as Torin claimed. From a distance, Gwyneth sees armed troops surrounding the village. Torin decides he must return and help defend the village and he rides away, leaving Gwyneth and Bronn with his friend Ivor. The Roman soldiers are numerous and well-armed, the battle is savage, 
and soon Torin is the only villager remaining alive. He is badly wounded, and there is a deep cut on the left side of his face that has blinded his eye. A storm is raging, and he is outnumbered by soldiers with sturdy shields and sharp spears. He hears an order for his capture, and says it is far better to die a free man than to live a Roman slave. He leaps toward the soldiers with his sword in hand to make a final attack, but there is a flash of bright light, and he vanishes. He suddenly appears on a spaceship. There is a view of an alien planet, moon, stars, and sun in the background, and a dark-haired woman looks at him from a computer console. In the director's cut version of the first issue of Star Slayer, we were dropped into the future in the middle of the story, but here in issue number two, we step back into the past and get Torin's origin story, and we learn who Gwyneth is that he was longing for at the end of issue number one. The cover by Mike Grell provides a split view of Torin in the past fighting the Romans and the scene of Tamara on board the Jolly Roger from the last page. There are many dynamic images and panel layouts that are well done, and the pacing is good throughout the issue. There's a two-page splash page of Torin's son killing the boar that is reminiscent of the two-page title page spreads that Mike Grell often uses in his Warlord series. There's also an impressive two-page spread of Torin fighting the Romans. It's a great action pose, and it's interesting because it isn't a typical landscape image that is usually seen in two-page spreads. Instead, the book has to be turned sideways for a vertical two-page spread. That isn't something you often see in comics. I love the page where Torin is looking out to sea, and the view of the ships in the water near the rocky shores overlaid on his cape, creating a very nice effect. And I really like the silhouette of the group traveling toward the woods with the sunset behind them. It's a gorgeous mix of red, orange, yellow, and purple. There's another stunning two-page spread of the bloody battle between Torin and the Romans near the end. The entire scene is framed by the curl of a red cape of one of the Roman soldiers. It's an impressive image. The night sky is filled with rain and lightning to create just the right ominous atmosphere in Torin's final stand against the Romans, and his disappearance and rematerialization includes stars shining through the image, creating a terrific effect. Of course, a favorite sequence of mine was the encounter with the druid and the hints that implied his Merlin from the Arthurian legend. It's neat to make Torin an ancestor of King Arthur. And it's a treat to see the sword Excalibur make a brief appearance as sunlight strikes it through a round window, causing it to sparkle and gleam like magic. It was a golden age. Our Martian civilization was at the height of its peace and prosperity. White Martians came from beneath the planet's surface, bringing fire from the planet's guts, and they burned us all. I lost my family. Came to Earth when my civilization was destroyed. Detective John Jones is what you might call my human alter ego. I'm not the only thing from outer space that's come, but right now I'm the only thing that can stop alien invasion. My name is John Jones, also known as the Martian Manhunter. I'm Mars' sole survivor. There's a reason for that. I will defend Earth. You are the head of Kalanu. Podcast available to iTunes. Shout engine. Green Arrow number 5, The Gauntlet, Part 1, June 1988. Writer Mike Grell. Pencils Ed Hannigan. Inks Dick Giordano and Frank McLaughlin. Colors Julia Laquament. Letters John Costanza. Editor Mike Gold. The story opens with the bustling nightlife on Broadway Avenue in Seattle. Each panel features a different view of the street and different crowds of people, but there are always two well-dressed men in each image. One is wearing a green coat with a scarf, 
and the other a blue coat with a bow tie. At Sherwood Florist, we find Colin, a part-time worker who is helping Oliver put items into storage for Dinah. Colin is a hard worker who is saving up for college, and he's wearing a Washington Huskies hooded jacket. Oliver takes a break from work and flips through a magazine about Alaska. He wants to visit and asks Dinah to go along to watch the start of the famous Iditarod dog sled race. The two men we saw on the street in the opening scene walk into the shop, and Dinah comments they are becoming her best customers. The man in the green coat asks to buy a white rose for their seventh anniversary. Then the two leave and continue to walk along the street and then into a park. Ominous shadows are shown in the background and the two are brutally attacked. One is killed and the other is hospitalized. Back at Sherwood Florist, the police explain they found the receipt for the flower at the crime scene and hope to learn more from Oliver and Dinah. There have been a series of similar brutal attacks against gay men in the area and a general increase in gang activity. The next day, Colin shows up to tell Dinah he can't continue to work for her anymore. The hood of his Washington Huskies jacket is pulled up over his head and he's avoiding eye contact. She tries to convince him not to quit and finally manages to see his face, which is cut, bandaged, and badly bruised. He begins to cry and explains he has been involuntarily drafted into a gang and the beating he suffered is from the initiation. Meanwhile, Green Arrow slips into the intensive care unit to see the man who survived the attack in the park. He says the assailants were just kids, and Green Arrow promises to investigate. Oliver then goes undercover, first visiting a gay bar, and then walking alone along the same route as the couple from the last attack. He is ambushed by a group of teens, but he fights back, knocking out two of the attackers, and then chases after the third. When he catches up to him, he is shocked to see it is Colin. The cover is a close-up of Green Arrow with his bow drawn and two white roses in the bottom corner. I like the street scenes of the nightlife in Seattle particularly, and I like the way the flowers framed the center scene of Oliver and Colin working on page two. The silhouettes of Oliver and Dinah inside the shop and framed with a yellow background in the last panel on page four are also very nice. The crime scene of the two attacked men is a little puzzling. There are several police officers on site collecting evidence and taking photographs, but no medical personnel. That was especially confusing when it was revealed later that one of the two men survived the attack, because surely someone would have been attending to the survivor. I enjoyed the light and pleasant banter at the flower shop. It was fun to see those slice-of-life moments with Oliver and Dinah relaxing and enjoying each other's company, and the mention of the Iditarod dog sled race foreshadows a future story, so stay tuned. Also, while we've seen the green Sherwood Florist delivery van in the past, I don't think I've mentioned that I like the design. It is reminiscent of a 1940s van, maybe harking back to the origin of Green Arrow in the comics. Just a thought. Colin is a very interesting character, and Mike Grell's writing makes us care about him immediately. The scene of him leaving the shop at sunset with his head hung low was effective, showing how downtrodden he is at the moment. Hopefully, Green Arrow can help him in the next issue. Green Arrow number 6, The Gauntlet, Part 2, July 1988. Writer, Mike Grell. Pencils, Ed Hannigan. Inks, Dick Giordano with Frank McLaughlin. Colors, Julia Lackament. Letters, John Costanza. Editor, Mike Gold. The story picks up right where we left off in Part 1. When Oliver realizes it is Colin, he tells him to sit on a bench while he ties the other gang members to a tree. He then pressures Colin to tell him what is going on and who is in charge. Colin wasn't involved in any of the earlier attacks. This was the first task he was given after being forced to go through the initiation called the gauntlet.
Next, we meet Reggie. He is the head of the gang and has just flown into Seattle. He's come for a surprise inspection and visits Kibo, the local gang leader, to get an update on business. The expansion in Seattle is going well. Profits are rising as drug sales and prostitution have increased. Reggie emphasizes the importance of their crime organization relying on small transactions by juveniles to avoid attracting attention and because the youth don't have to do much time in the juvenile justice system if caught. As Reggie is relaxing with some champagne, a green arrow shatters the glass and Oliver makes his entrance from the rafters. He confronts Reggie with a newspaper headline about the most recent death and a series of crimes that are attracting much attention in the press. Reggie says he knows nothing of these crimes and would never get involved in something that attracts so much attention. During their conversation, Reggie manages to trigger a silent alarm, causing a group of his guards to barge in with guns drawn. During the standoff, Green Arrow gets Kibo to admit he is the one ordering the assaults. During Oliver's research, he found that Keith Bowman, a.k.a. Kibo, had been gang-raped in prison. Reggie interrupts to say he doesn't have to listen to Green Arrow and that nothing he says can be trusted because he has not earned his respect. To earn the right to be heard, Green Arrow must walk the gauntlet while gang members line up on each side to beat him with baseball bats and other weapons. Bloodied and injured, Oliver crosses the finish line, and Reggie is now ready to listen to him. Oliver wants Kibo to be turned over to the police. Kibo draws a gun, explaining his vendetta is justified because he has contracted AIDS. As he continues to protest, Reggie draws out a gun and shoots and kills him. Later, Oliver is driving the Sherwood Florist van when he sees Colin. He pulls over to encourage him to come back to work and leave the gang. Colin says it is the only way to survive and that nothing ever really changes. Oliver says, we'll see. And in the next panel, the headline in the newspaper says, Modern Day Robin Hood Donates $100,000 to Fund an Inner City Youth Center. The closing panel has Greg Osborne reading the headline in the newspaper, and he says, Gotcha. The cover features Reggie and several members of his gang. The only representation of our title character is an actual green arrow sticking out of the wall behind them. The panel of Reggie's flight approaching the Seattle airport at night is particularly nice with a star-filled sky and mountains in the background. The champagne glasses shattering is a great startling scene and the splash page of Green Arrow and the rafters confronting Reggie is a classic pose. The gauntlet fight features overlapping images, some are in color and some in black and white. It's a nice artistic effect of a very uncomfortable scene. We don't get a happy ending for Colin in this issue, but things are rarely easy or tidy in the gritty reality of Mike Grell's Green Arrow. We'll have to see what comes next. Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Black Canary and Zatanna, together in one podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and I've got a thing for superheroes in fishnet stockings. That's why I started Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. Join me every two weeks as I celebrate the Blonde Bombshell and the Mistress of Magic in their exciting adventures published by DC Comics. Power of Fishnets. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. The Warlord number 11.
Flashback, March 1978, written and illustrated by Mike Grell. This will be the easiest issue of Warlord that we've covered so far, because it's primarily a reprint of Travis Morgan's origin story from earlier in the series that we already covered back in Episode 1. The cover features a menacing view of Morgan holding his sword in one hand and his gun in the other hand. It's a great pose by Mike Grell. The story opens with Morgan, Machiste, and Mariah on the run from a Triceratops. The three duck into a narrow cave for safety, and there Machiste and Mariah catch up on some much-needed rest. But Morgan stays vigilant and thinks back to when he first arrived in Scataris. After these two new pages, the issue transitions to a reprint of the first appearance of Warlord from the first issue special, recounting how Morgan arrived in Scataris and met Tara, and how the two first encountered the evil Demos. It's a well-timed reprint to remind readers of Tara, who we haven't seen in several issues, as well as reminding us of Demos, who was just revived by the witch in the previous issue. Shag, a Firestorm fan, will appreciate this issue, as it features an ad for the explosive first issue of Firestorm by Jerry Conway. The Warlord Number 12, Trilogy, May 1978 written and illustrated by Mike Grell. The story opens with Mariah writing in a book and making accompanying sketches. Machise asks what she's doing, and she explains she is starting to document her time in Scataris. Just then they hear a huge fight break out in a nearby bar and look through the open doorway and see Morgan in the midst of a fight, and the two question each other about why they follow a man who seems to revel in acting like a savage. Machiste recounts the story after he and Morgan had escaped from the gladiator school and while Morgan was building his army. A young boy approached, wanting to join the troops, and he even brought his own sword. However, Morgan encouraged the boy to enjoy his childhood. As the rejected boy walked off into the woods, a T-Rex attacked. Morgan rushed forward, firing his gun, and when the T-Rex turned toward him, the boy swung his sword, cutting deep into the flesh and muscles of the dinosaur's ankle, causing it to fall and allowing Morgan and Machise to finish off the beast. Morgan rewarded the boy with an ornate helmet, a fine horse, and a flag, and told him to return to his village as his herald. Meanwhile, Mariah remembers a time just after she arrived in Scataris. Morgan quietly took her to a clearing where she saw a beautiful unicorn. She was entranced to see a creature she thought only existed in legend. But then, an arrow pierced the unicorn, and a band of warriors erupted from the forest, killing the creature. Enraged, Morgan descended upon the men, killing them all, and then bowed and wept over the dead body of the unicorn. She wonders what kind of man combines savagery with sensitivity, fury with passion, and a still blade with gentle hands. Morgan approaches them, refreshed, after winning the brawl in the bar, and toasts them, saying, This is life. The issue is interesting as Machiste and Mariah feel the need to explain to each other why they feel a bond with Morgan. It's a valid question to explore as Mariah has left the comforts and technology of the surface world, while Machiste is a monarch who chooses to spend large amounts of time away from his kingdom. The cover features Morgan and the T-Rex, but unlike the scene in the issue that features a young boy, it is Mariah who is in peril on the cover. I'm sure putting her on the cover instead of the boy helps sell more copies. The two-page title spread for this issue features Morgan engaged in a brawl in the bar. The page of the T-Rex attacking the boys turned sideways. I'm a little surprised it wasn't done as a two-page spread because it would have benefited from that, but I guess it wasn't as common to have several two-page spreads in a single book at this point in time. The unicorn is colored in beautiful yellows and golds and looks great against the green backgrounds of the forest. It was as sad for the reader to see it killed as it was for Mariah. 
The Warlord, number 13, The Hunter, July 1978. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Colors, Adrian Roy. Letters, Ben Oda. Editor, Larry Hama. The Warlord and his companions, Mashist and Mariah, are slowly making their way through a swamp. Morgan explains that although it's dangerous, it's the most direct route to Shambhala, where he hopes to find Tara. Suddenly, a huge and ferocious creature with extremely sharp teeth emerges from the water to attack. All three of our heroes rush into the fight, and Morgan manages to jump on the creature's back and sink his sword deep into its head. As the beast falls, Morgan comments that the creature died too easily. He thinks it was already injured, and scans the surrounding area where he finds rifle bullet casings, meaning someone from the outside world must be nearby. Shots ring out, and the group runs for cover, but trigger a tripwire, dislodging a log that swings down and knocks all of them down and out. When they regain consciousness, Mashiste and Mariah are tied to a tree and have plastic explosives strapped to them. Morgan is confronted by Stryker. He was one of the agents sent to bring Morgan back to the U.S. when he reappeared in Machu Picchu back in issue 6. Stryker was badly injured in their previous encounter, losing his sight in one eye and having to undergo painful physical therapy to walk again. He became obsessed with getting revenge against Morgan, and he spent a year searching for the tunnel entrance to Skataris that had been buried by the explosives Morgan set. Now that he has tracked Morgan down, he wants to hunt him for sport. As motivation, he gives Morgan a chance to find the detonator he has hidden in the forest. It will disarm the explosives strapped to Machista Mariah. In addition, Stryker has hidden Morgan's gun somewhere in the swamp. Morgan takes the head start that is offered and runs, being on the lookout for traps that Stryker has set. He avoids many, but triggers one that causes a sharp bamboo spike to stab him in his thigh, slowing him down considerably. In addition to Stryker's traps, Morgan also has to be on the lookout for the swamp's natural dangers, including a giant snake that attacks him. But the warlord is able to avoid the poisonous fangs and dispatches the creature with his sword. He spots his pistol laying on a rock and knows it's a trap, but is tempted to go for it. Dodging more traps along the way, he reaches for the gun, just as the reader sees a wire that will trigger an explosive device. From a distance, Stryker sees the explosion and smiles, and walks on to collect the detonator, but is surprised to see it is no longer where he hid it. Then he hears, I smell the unmistakable stench of plastic explosives. Stryker turns to see a bloody and seriously injured Morgan holding both the detonator and his gun. Before Stryker can respond, Morgan shoots him, the bullet passing directly through his blind eye. This was a fast-paced, action-packed issue with so many hazards for Morgan to overcome. The cover shows the warlord battling the vicious swamp creature, and he is framed in the crosshairs of a rifle that is aimed at his heart. The art in this issue is great. In addition to the various creatures, there are so many details included in the flora and fauna of the land, and I love the way moss hangs from the trees. The two-page title spread, which shows our heroes engaged in battle with the swamp creature, is spectacular. The layout includes a dark tree in the background, echoing the arc of the neck of the creature. The expressions on their faces and the poses of the characters are spot on. All are startled and are moving to avoid the attack. There is no conversation on these or the following pages as the group reacts and focuses on the fight. Another nice page later on features a large, full-figure view of Stryker in the center of the page that overlaps all of the other panels on the page. It's a great layout. As usual with Mike Grell's art, there is a nice variety to the panels that often add to the dynamics of the story and make it easy to visually follow the flow of the story. Battling multiple creatures in the story helps to reinforce the sense of danger and illustrates the natural hazards in the world. The Warlord commissioned by Ron Randall that we mentioned earlier in the podcast would be right at home in this issue, 
It also features Morgan battling a serpent-like creature in the swamp. And we enjoyed the one-page Aquaman adventure advertising Hostess Twinkies. We're longtime fans of Aquaman and enjoyed seeing him in this fun little ad. For any other fans out there, be sure to check out Rob Kelly's Aquaman Shrine and the Fire and Water podcast. The Warlord Number 14, All Men Are Mine, September 1978. Written and illustrated by Mike Grell. Letters, Todd Klein. Colors, Adrian Roy. Editor, Larry Hama. Our story opens with a concerned Mariah and Machiste looking at an unconscious Morgan. He has developed a serious infection from the many injuries he suffered in the previous issue. Mariah has given him medication from Stryker's first aid kit, but there's nothing else the two can do now other than wait. Inside Morgan's fevered mind, he sees the shadow of a woman and calls out to Tara, but while it does turn out to be the visage of a beautiful woman, it is not Tara. The woman calls out, Come to me, my beloved. I am the end of all pain and suffering, for I am death. Morgan's reaction to death is to fight, and he lunges forward, stabbing his sword through the woman's heart, but it does no damage. She pulls out the sword and blasts Morgan with a bolt of searing pain and asks, What is it that drives you, Morgan? And Morgan calls out Tara's name once again. You spurn me, Death says, but in the end you will cry for my kiss. And at that instant Morgan wakes and asks of relief Mariah and Machiste, Where can a guy get a good bowl of chicken soup around here? We get some further reminders of Tara here as the series prepares for her return. The cover features a more traditional image of death as a skeleton dressed in a black cloak, riding a white horse, carrying a scythe, and preparing to swing it at a fleeing Morgan. The shadowed introduction of death is nicely done and does look very reminiscent of Tara. It's exactly like Morgan to face death by fighting, and his attempt to kill death is quite amusing. And it's really nice to see Machiste and Mariah so concerned about Morgan. It harks back to the earlier story when the two were recounting past adventures with him. Next up is listener feedback when we share the emails and other messages we've received since last time. We sincerely appreciate every message we've received and truly believe they add immeasurably to the show. So a big thanks to everyone who took the time to write in. Michael Lane wrote in saying, I just wanted to mention how happy I am to see a podcast dedicated to Mike Grell. I was first introduced to him through the Longbow Hunters, but then became a fan of his Warlord title and all of his other work. I had the opportunity to meet him for the first time at Baltimore Comic Con in 2015, and it was great. I found the complete run of his Warlord and Green Arrow books, and he did an amazing sketch of Ollie in my first Green Arrow book. He was a joy to talk to, very friendly, and actually spoke to my wife and me for well over an hour. One of the best experiences I've ever had meeting a comic book professional, and I'm thrilled to see you promoting his work. And Michael attached a copy of the sketch he mentioned, which is amazing. And what's even more amazing is that we were at the same Baltimore Comic Con, and we remember seeing Mike Grell drawing in someone's bound Green Arrow book. So it appears that we were in line right behind Michael. As they say, it's a small world. Michael's hope is to eventually get a sketch in each volume of those bound Green Arrow comics. Top choices for the sketches are Dinah, Shadow, and Eddie Fires. And if he gets the opportunity, he'd like to do the same with his Warlord books as well. That sounds like a great ambition, Michael. I hope you get more opportunities to meet up with Mike Grell and get those sketches. And maybe we'll run into you at another convention as well. Outside the Lombox just discovered our podcast and is excited to listen because they love Warlord. We really hope you enjoy it and look forward to hearing your thoughts in the future. Karen Williams of the Between the Pages blog shared several comments, including one about Starslayer, saying she really enjoyed our introduction as she knew almost nothing about that series. 
She went on to say, one thing I really like about your podcast is how you use them to talk about other things you like, such as Robin Hood. She shared that she had enjoyed if we would do the occasional one-off special episode about things like Robin Hood or the Avengers British TV show. So maybe we'll consider doing something like that from time to time. Thanks, Karen. Karen also appreciated the reference to Basil Rathbone and Errol Flynn's Robin Hood, as that's one of her favorite movies. And she really appreciated our joke about losing the Best New Podcast Award to Trekker Talk. Son of Cthulhu of the Crap Box of Cthulhu blog got in on the conversation about Robin Hood as well. He realized his 11-year-old son hadn't seen the Errol Flynn Robin Hood yet, and it was time to correct that. He liked the picture we posted of the remains of the original castle at Nottingham, saying history can be so cool. And he had some good questions about our time in Sherwood Forest and Nottingham specifically. He wanted to know about the tax rates, and if they were collected by a wolf in a hat. Now that was a clever reference to the Sheriff of Nottingham, voiced by Pat Buttram in the Disney Robin Hood animated film. And still speaking of references, Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog was happy to hear us reference Zorro as portrayed by Duncan Regeer. He shared that Regeer's version of Zorro is generally how he pictures the character. I absolutely love that version of the show from the 1990s as well, and I've always wanted to meet Duncan Regeer. He doesn't seem to make convention appearances, though, but in addition to acting, he is also an artist and periodically has art exhibitions in Canada. It would be lovely to attend one of his exhibitions. Brian Mulvey wasn't surprised that our personal Robin Hood collection included the series starring Richard Green from the 1950s, as it's a favorite of his as well. And many thanks to Brian for saying I'm a dead ringer for Maid Marian. Brian gets bonus points for that. Plus, we learned that Brian has been a huge fan of Zorro his whole life. Like us, he has both the Guy Williams and the Duncan Regeer shows in his DVD collection, and he even shared a photo with us of him as a kid dressed up like Zorro. You were adorable, Brian. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary blog wrote, Just wanted to say that I listened to episode 3 and it made me want to do something I never thought I would do. Read a Warlord comic. I tend to shy away from sword and sorcery stuff in general, although some titles now and then intrigue me. Your description of these early issues makes them sound like fun entertainment, so I might have to seek these out. I have said before I consider myself a Grail fan, even if Warlord is a hole in my knowledge. I'm hoping that someday you will discuss his work on the Legion, the place I discovered him and discovered comics. Ange isn't the only one who asked us to cover Mike's time on the Legion of Superheroes. Jeff Messer is also a big fan of the Legion and, like Ange, first discovered Mike Grail through his work on that series. That's an important part of Mike Grail's career, so we will definitely visit it in the near future. We're just trying to figure out exactly how we want to cover it, so stay tuned, Jeff and Ange. And speaking of Jeff Messer, he gave us some kind compliments in a post, saying we have a perfect balance of fan devotion and respect in the way we approach each issue. Too often I have heard podcasts that get bogged down in the podcaster's need to make wisecracks or sound self-important. Darren and Ruth are all about the work, speaking for itself, and giving it due respect in the presentation. It is as refreshing as it is enjoyable to listen. Plus, he gave us a shout-out on a recent episode of his Geek Brain podcast, mentioning both Warlord Worlds and Trekker Talk. Thank you, Jeff. Joe Crawford of the Non-Discerning Readers blog posted a photo and comments about Barren Earth that generated some great comments by both writer Gary Cohn and artist Ron Randall. The Barren Earth series ran as a backup in Warlord and was edited by Laurie Sutton. Ron Randall replied, saying it was his first major work in comics in the mid-1980s, and it was tons of fun to collaborate with Gary Cohn on his vivid and groundbreaking epic. This series had just about everything the 10-year-old boy in me loved about comics, plus a great story to satisfy the adult fan in me as well. We're going to be covering Barren Earth in the future, but even though it was published as a backup in Warlord, we'll most likely cover it on Trekker Talk because of the connection to Ron Randall. 
However, when we do cover it, we'll mention it here on Warlord Worlds for those of you who want to hear about the series. We were overwhelmed to read the many wonderful iTunes reviews we've received. We meant to cover several of these last episode, but it sadly slipped our minds. So we're very sorry to those of you who had to wait to hear us mention your review. An Exploration and Celebration of Mike Grell's Worlds by Ryan Daly. There's only one reason I might give this podcast four stars instead of five, and that simply is that it didn't premiere months ago. Seriously, what took Darren and Ruth so long to replicate the love and devotion they show to Ron Randall's Trekker comic on their Trekker Talk podcast for the glorious works of Mike Grell? I'll give them the full five stars because the result is well worth the wait. They're not simply tackling Grell's stellar fantasy warlord or his character-redefining run on Green Arrow. They're covering both, and they're adding some of Grell's other works, like Starslayer and John Sable, too. Ruth and Darren are great podcast hosts. Their fondness for the subject matter is evident, and their knowledge of Mike Grell and the stories he crafts is always on point and enthusiastic. I can't wait to hear more from this show. Excellent, wrote Woody C. Can't wait to hear more and dig deep into the Master's catalog. Bravo. Must Listen by Ed Moore. Darren and Ruth bring their excellent research, thoughts, and delivery to yet another niche of comics podcasting that has been underserved. Mike Grell is a true master, and few could do him the justice that Darren and Ruth will. Grab it before it gets too hot. Mike Grell Fans Rejoice by Westside Gus. We suspect this might be Gus Ceballos, but let us know if we guessed wrong, please. I'm a huge fan of Iron Mike, and I'm so happy there is a podcast available to review and summarize the great stories he has provided comics fans for nearly 40 years. Definitely have me coming along for the Warlord World's Ride. Just What the Grell Fan Has Been Waiting For by Jeff Messer. As a lifelong Grell fan, this is like having a podcast catered to me. And Darren and Ruth are legit fans who are incredibly nice people to boot. The right blend of recap and fanboy and girl love. Excellent podcast by Saya Masinko. If you are interested in Mike Grell, this is the podcast for you. The hosts share the coverage equally and both speak with clear and even voices. This podcast can serve as both an introduction to Grell's works and as a loving tribute to favorite stories. You will find yourself hooked. Another Smash by Joe Crawford. This podcast focuses on comic legend Mike Grell. Green Arrow, John Sable, Star Slayer, and of course, Travis Morgan. As usual, the Sutherlands do a superior job covering a nice selection of issues every episode. Grail is Great by Rob Kelly. What a great idea for a show. Instead of focusing on a particular series or character, Warlord Worlds follows the work of a single creator, the great Mike Grail, across all of the various projects he has been a part of. A fun premise well performed by Darren and Ruth Sutherland, whose love of Grail's works shines through every episode. If you're a Grail fan, this show is a must. If you're not, give it a try, and I bet you'll come away with a greater appreciation for all the cool comics the man has worked on. A very big thanks to all of you who are so kind to take the time to post these reviews on iTunes. We can't thank you enough. Next, we want to extend our thanks to everyone who supported us on social media since the last episode. These are people who favorited or retweeted our tweets or liked our Facebook or Tumblr pages. Before we start, let us say if we miss a name, please let us know and we'll correct it in the next episode. And also forgive us if we mispronounce your name. Just email us and let us know and we'll be happy to correct that next episode as well. Ange of the Supergirl Comic Box Commentary Blog, BC Fan 101, Becca, Birds of Prey Podcast, Bold Atlas, Brian Balvey, Bronze Age Babes, Captain Marvel 75, Chris Mounts, Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog, Comics in Color, David Golding Artist, DC in the 80s, DC TV Podcasts, 
Diabolu Frank of the Idlehead of Diabolu Martian Manhunter blog, Dr. G, Man of Nerdology from the Pulp to Pixel podcast, Ed, Terry, and Nick Moore of Till Productions, Gene Hendricks of The Hammer Strikes, Green Arrow Fan, Gus Ceballos of the Mike Grell Facebook page, Holly Elm, Jason Unmasked, Jeff Messer of the Geek Brain Podcast, Joe Crawford of For the Non-Discerning Reader blog, John Baker, Karen Williams of Between the Pages blog, Kung Fu Comics, Kyle Benning of the Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour, Laurie Sutton, former DC editor, lesbian comic lover, Let's Talk Shazam, Luke Dobb of Dobb Creative, Mario, Mark Sweeney, Martin Gray of the Too Dangerous blog, Michael Lane, Not Guano Man, Outside Longbox, Paul Carroll, Pietro Blaxamoff, Professor Allen of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Rachel Haynes, Richard Field, Rob Kelly of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Roel Morello, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ruth Reese, Ryan Daly of the Secret Origins and many other podcasts, Scott Cress of Catskill Comics, Shag Matthews, Firestorm Fan, Shazam Cast, Son of Cthulhu of the Crap Box Son of Cthulhu blog, Sin, Tim Wallace of Horde Industries Blue Beetle blog, Timothy G. Kramer of the Provocative Praise blog, Tony, and Willie Yarborough. Before we go, we want to provide our contact information. Please let us know your thoughts through email, Facebook, or Twitter. You can reach us at warlordworlds at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr under the name Warlord Worlds. And you can always visit warlordworlds.com for links to all of our social media pages. If you like the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It's a great way to help get the show noticed and hopefully attract more listeners. And please consider subscribing to the show so you always know when there's a new episode. You may also enjoy our other podcast, Trekker Talk about 23rd century bounty hunter Mercy St. Clair by Ron Randall. In our opinions, Mike Grell and Ron Randall are master storytellers and artists, and we're always happy to talk about their work and hear what others have to say. On the latest episode of that podcast, we covered the conclusion of Mercy St. Clair's origin story in Sins of the Fathers and talked about seeing one of our favorite films, Blade Runner, the final cut on the big screen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll come back next month for another new episode of Warlord Worlds. Warlord Worlds is not affiliated with DC Comics or Mike Grell. The views expressed on the show are solely ours. Music is taken from the album Royalty-Free Instrumental Music for Movies and Websites. Sound effects are taken from the album Sound Effects Collections Volume 9, Ultimate Sound Effects Collection, Sound Effects Library Volumes 1 and 2, Weapon Sound Effects, Number 1 Sound Effects for Movies, TV, and Websites, Sound Effects Volume 4, Archery Sound Effects, and Amazing Sound Effects of Monsters and Dinosaurs. We make no money from this podcast and no copyright infringement is intended.